Welcome to this special live edition of the Seneca Podcast coming to you today from the U.S. China Strong Foundation's China Career Summit at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. How are you, D.C.? <laughs> The Seneca Podcast is produced in partnership with SupChina, the best way to keep on top of the latest from China with a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I am Kaiser Guo, and I want to thank the U.S.-China Strong Foundation and, of course, its fearless and peerless leader, John Holden, uh, for making this possible. I am deeply honored to have as our guest today, Dr. Kurt Campbell. Uh, Dr. Campbell, as as you heard John say just now, uh, was instrumental in creating the 100,000 Strong Initiative and the Million Strong Initiative, and of course, uh, the, the progenitor here of the U.S. China Strong Foundation. Uh, so, Dr. Campbell, Kurt, if I may be so bold, he he served as Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs uh, during the first Obama administration, and was the author both figuratively and literally, of The Pivot. What I mean is that he wrote, of course, the author of The Policy and a book by that name about the policy, which policy that's also known as the rebalancing. We'll get into that. It really called for a refocus and a re-engagement with the Western Pacific. Kurt previously served as a naval officer on the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and he was Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Asia and the Pacific. He is currently Chairman and CEO of the Asia Group, a strategy and capital advisory group that he founded after leaving the State Department, and he continues to be one of the most influential voices about East Asian affairs, about U.S. policy in East Asia, and especially with China. So, Kurt Campbell, a very warm welcome to Seneca. Let's let's hear it for, for Dr. Campbell. Okay. Uh, since this is a China Career Summit, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you a bit about your own interest in East Asia and uh, the path that led you to where you are today. You didn't specialize in China or in East Asia in your years in school. Is that, is that correct? That's right, Kaiser. And it's a pleasure to be with you. And thank you for inviting me. And I also want to pass on my best wishes to John Holdren, who is a terrific uh, head of the U.S. China Strong Foundation, but has devoted his life to a better relationship between the United States and China. A more decent, intellectual, capable guy you will not find. That's right. Yeah. All right, John. Okay, so your career. Answer the question. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, good deflection. So, I grew up in uh, in Fresno, California, outside of Fresno, California, which any of you know, it's the place you drive through when you're going to Yosemite or Southern California. Uh, where I grew up, I thought the dominant group in our country were Armenians um, until you know, pretty much till high school. And I got a fellowship um, to study in what was then the Soviet Union, Soviet Armenia, when I was a kid, because I played the violin. So I had a chance to go study there and spent a couple of years there, and I enjoyed that enormously. And so most of my early education was either in music or when I was in as an undergrad was in Sovietology. And so that's where I had primarily focused my early time. I got my PhD at Oxford. But because my father had been in the Navy, I wanted to join. So I joined before I started teaching at Harvard. And my first assignment after basic training, Kaiser, was in the naval base just south of Tokyo. So my first trip to Japan was in that experience and was incredibly mesmerized by it. So if you you may know the naval base there, there, right next to it are these caves that still remind you of the Second World War and American and Japanese service 
people served close together. I found it intriguing. And really from there, I served at the Pentagon. And once I really discovered Asia, which was in about 1993, 19, no, my, 1990, I, my life completely changed. Yeah, you you oriented toward. I mean, it's interesting. I also start had a lot of music in my childhood. Also played violin, moved to guitar, but uh, I started in Sovietology as well mm-hmm. as an undergraduate. It was 1980s, and then like you, shifted to focus on Asia, and I ended up doing the rest of my undergraduate degree and my master's degree f- focused on that. Uh, but let's let's talk about Armenia. So do you do you actually speak Armenian? And did you? Did yeah, you learn, you know, yeah I speak a little Armenia. I remember my, I remember my mom. My mom said, you know, after I'd spent a couple of years studying you know, learning Armenian, a little bit of Russian. She goes, well, it's great. You've got Armenian. You can go anywhere with Armenian, you know. So, <laughs> oh, absolutely. So, you know, sir. Hey, no, but you really can. I mean, the, well, you can, the, the, the Armenian little places, diaspora community is yeah, enormous. It's everywhere. Right, yeah, you yeah. go You go a restaurant in almost every major city. That's true. Right. Uh, John mentioned that you have a podcast. It's called uh, mm-hmm. Tea Leaves. Is right? yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that and where we can find it? Well, let's see. So, uh, so when when I when I was in government, you, you learn a lot of different things in government. You learn things that you anticipate, and you learn a lot of things that you that surprise you. The biggest surprise I had was I'd be one of those people that says that or believes that the lion's share of the history of the 21st century is going to be written in Asia. Right. But if you look at our major institutions, you wouldn't know it um, because we've been so focused on things. I would say largely that detract from uh, American greatness and have bled the nation in in more ways than one. But the surprise for me was the business community who would come in on a regular basis. And I was shocked at how much they struggled with just some of what I thought were some of the basics in Asia. So when when I left, I decided I wanted to try to create an opportunity to help support American businesses, but others as well, because at the core, Kaiser, of what matters in Asia is really not security and it's not other issues. It really is. Is there, is there a uh, vibrant, optimistic playing field on the business level? So we started this business group, but you know, I we hire a lot of millennials and I've learned a lot over the years, like purpose matters. And so we've created a foundation to support a variety of causes. We support 100,000 strong U.S. China strong now. We built five schools from scratch in Myanmar and educated about 5,000 kids over the last couple of years. But in addition, we wanted to reach more people. And the truth is, the only difference I would take with what John said is that all studies show that really podcasts are not in competition with one another because once people start listening to podcasts, they're much more open to other kinds of podcasts. So we started about four months ago, and we wanted to basically bring together people that were interested in people that are expert in Asia on cuisine or diplomacy or or you know actors and introduce a group of Americans largely to Asia the new Asia that's arriving and and have people be interested in it so my partner is ambassador rich firm he was our ambassador to India our first Indian American ambassador just as a terrific guy and so we've been up and running for about four months. I've listened to this quite a bit. I know your personality. Um, we haven't found that yet. We try to you know, kind of mix it up, but it takes some time to sort of figure out how to be effective. I love doing it. Um, sometimes people will ask me questions about it, but hopefully we, we, we're at about 3,000 now, but like nothing compared to the X-Files or in Pod We Trust, but <laughs> we can aspire, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Pod Save America, I think yeah. is the one. Yeah, but well, you'll you'll get there, uh, and. Uh, 
I think that you know, let's let's make sure that it's called it's it's called tea leaves. Tea leaves, like, it on like, iTunes, like right? reading the tea, you know, yeah. And it's a it's you describe it as about Indo-Pacific affairs, mm-hmm. right? And there's no code there for the, this new usage of the term Indo-Pacific and the Quad. Is there? It's, it's just well, because Rich happens to have been yeah. I, look, so there's a difference between the Quad, which I think has unmistakable containment overtones and Indo-Pacific. Like Indo-Pacific is simply a fact, which is India is playing a larger role in Asia. It is not code word for let's all get together and get really anxious about the arrival of China on that global scene. But more that India grew up in a pretty challenging neighborhood and is increasingly focused economically, commercially, and I would argue strategically on uh, the region uh, to its east, as opposed to being obsessively, fanatically focused, uh, for instance, on Pakistan. Kurt, you talked a little bit about what the Asia Group is doing and your focus on on business and the, the primacy of business. Uh, and I, I very much agree with you there. This is a talking point that was in your descriptions about the purpose of the rebalancing, or as it used to be called, the pivot. You mentioned just now the perception, at least, of containment, containing the idea of the quad, right? This is not the only time that we've seen a perception of containment. You, having been a diplomat, you understand the importance of perception in diplomacy. My sense, my very distinct sense, is that there are very few people across the table from you as a diplomat in China who don't see or didn't see the idea of the pivot as some species of containment. Were you at all successful in convincing any of your uh, Chinese counterparts that your notion of the pivot wasn't containment in a, by another name? That's a, that's a good question. Um, so I, I would say I, I served in that capacity, Kaiser, for about five years. Um, um, I would say that during that period, um, my two closest counterparts were Chinese diplomats um, and people I became very close and dear friends with. Um, my most um, stark memory of my period as assistant secretary, I, I, I'll tell the story quickly, but we, you know, we found ourselves trying to manage a blind dissident in uh, our embassy. Xin Guangchang. Right. And it was very hard, extremely challenging. Actually, John gave me some good advice during this period. But I remember sitting with one of these diplomats who, again, is a very dear friend. And during the negotiations, which were extraordinarily taxing and incredibly hard. Took me to the extremes of every aspect, like creativity, endurance, everything. But what was striking to me was that during those consultations, it became clear at the very core of this cosmopolitan, urbane, sophisticated diplomat, probably the best of diplomat I've ever worked with, was a fundamental mistrust of the United States, a belief that ultimately the United States was really out for um, undermining China. And and it depressed me, actually. It concerned me. I mean, at the time, you know, you just you, you try to deal with it. But, but I, I do think that it is difficult to underestimate how much dis- strategic distrust there is at the core of the U.S.-China relationship. That doesn't mean we throw our hands up and say we can't get through this, but I believe most uh, Chinese interlocutors view American, certain aspects of American engagement as about 
trying to exploit Chinese weaknesses or to checkmate them on some battlefield. And that pertained to the various color revolutions in the Middle East, uh, you name it. And Later so, on the Arab Spring, of yeah, course. Arab, yeah. uh, and so I, I, um, I, I, think it, I think if we're honest with ourselves, that is in fact an enduring feature. And my experience, Kaiser, actually, is that the more that you try to, to um, explain or reassure, sometimes the worse it gets. And so what I tried to focus on was develop, you know, you always have to think what matters to you? What do you want to work on as a government official or as a diplomat? For me, it was what I would call habits of cooperation. I was struck at how little true cooperation um, there was in the U.S. or is in the U.S.-China relationship, and you know they, we spent a lot of time talking about ex, you know exalted concepts of you know gr- you know strategic partnerships and the like, but spend remarkably little time actually working together to solve problems, whether it's climate change or development or piracy. And so my focus was. Let's not talk about getting rid of strategic distrust. Let's try to work on cooperation together. And through that process, um, we will learn more about one another. I will tell you, that was extremely difficult. And, and structurally, uh, for a variety of reasons, China was and has been reluctant uh, in many venues to actually work with the United States for, for reasons that really re- require more exploration. But that is something that, that was frustrating with to me. Let's do some of that exploration right now. <laughs> Strategic mistrust, distrust certainly has endured as a feature, but it has ebbed and flowed. It has gotten uh, more intense in some periods and less so in others. I would characterize the period after September 11th as a period of less so when the United States was distracted, of course, by the global war on terror, successfully enrolled China just by labeling an organization called the East Turkestan Islamic Movement a terrorist organization, sort of enrolled them successfully, you know, maybe in a limited capacity in that war on terror. And then China seems to have felt the pressure come off. The strategic distrust wasn't as much of a feature in diplomacy during that period. And you'd be sort of hard pressed to look at uh, periods you know, the incidents that really roiled the waters between the U.S. and China up until 07 or so. Now, I would suggest that it ticked up considerably beginning in, in 2008, especially uh, in, in March of 08 after, well, I think there are a lot of people who I've talked to on this show about what people have termed an illiberal turn or an authoritarian revival, or I used to call it the new truculence. It's no longer new, so it's just the truculence. I think most people who I've asked would place this in the sort of 2008, 2009 timeframe. There's a concept in, in diplomacy that we call security dilemma sensibility, right? Where we, we have to be aware of the the way that our behaviors are perceived by our counterparty. And my sense has always been that we're not always as aware as we could have been about how uh, those color revolutions and our supposed role in them, I don't believe that we had as much of a role as China imagined, perennial boogeymen like the National Endowment for Democracy, our support for, for sort of law and rights NGOs, our doctrine of, of internet freedom, uh, all these things were perceived as that same toolkit that had been used in these color revolutions. And then later on in Tehran in 2009, after the re-election of Ahmadinejad, and then, of course, in the Arab Spring. And so you had to deal with this this uptick in... in but I think it was also in part because 
they were afraid of the power that was supposed to be represented by Secretary Clinton, uh, by uh, Susan Rice and by Samantha Powers and by yourself. This soft power kind of uh, from dictatorship to democracy kind of, 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 of approach. Because you get a lot there, so I'll try to I'll try to unpack part of it. I, I first of all, I would suggest that it's extremely important not to um, mistake distraction for distraction for trust. So I think during a period between two thousand one and two thousand seven or two thousand eight, the dominant feature was not that there was suddenly a new element of trust in the U.S.-China relationship. We were focused on other issues. Uh, it's true that China assisted a little bit in that effort, but basically I think they were generally satisfied that the United States was was focused elsewhere. And I think their attitude could best be described by, like one of my daughters would say, you go girl, you, you know, you've got such important work in Afghanistan and Pakistan and Iraq, you go do that, we'll take care of Asia, and then in 20 years come back and we'll talk. Um, so I, I generally would tend to suggest that that's the dominant feature, and it's not somehow that there was a sudden um, increase in trust. I also believe that the dominant feature that happened in 2000, 2007, 2008 was not the arrival of a number of mid-level diplomats. That's completely over-interpretation. What happened in 2007, 2008 was the global financial crisis. And essentially, the American model of doing business was completely undermined. Yes. So after lecturing countries for decades, do it this way, do it that way, the Asian economic crisis in 1998, uh, suddenly, you know, the chips came home and it was clear that the United States had badly mismanaged our own uh, uh, financial system and we played a role in taking the uh, global system to the edge. Now, just a second. So my my own view at this period is slightly different. I think the dominant feeling or uh, sensibility in China was the sense that the United States was in the midst of a hurtling decline and that the United States would be out of the region um, uh, before too long. And so I so I, I think the, um, the the dilemma always in um, U.S.-China diplomacy is a mixture of reassurance. And undeniably, I believe that uh, at a strategic level, certain kinds of reassurance is, are um, um, absolutely essential. Uh, but I also believe at the core of Chinese strategic thinking is the most refined zero-sum uh, strategic analysis that exists. And I believe they made very real calculations about American power. And so part of what was necessary is to underscore that the United States was going to continue to be uh, an Asia-Pacific uh, uh, player in the region for decades to come. So, so I'm unapologetic about that. But I would also argue to Chinese friends, this is a difficult one. So if you ask me, when, is the, when has been the best period in China's history. I would argue it's the last 30 years by far. Why is that? Undeniably, it is largely because of the incredibly hard work and determination of Chinese friends. And there's just that's just without question. But it is also the case that they have profited and thrived within a system that the United States helped create, the operating system of Asia that created the rules, 
the the uh, you know peaceful resolution of, of disputes, and that we should tinker with that um, with some real trepidation. And so it was an attempt to suggest to the Chinese friends that a move to a uh, bold, you know, uh, spheres of influence or 19th century conception of power was not in their interests. It certainly wasn't in the, in the surrounding region's interests, but it was not in their interests as well. And I think that drama is still playing out with many questions in Asia about whether the United States is going to continue to be a great power into the future in Asia. And I think that is the, the biggest questions in Asia right now are not about China. I think people have a pretty clear sense of where China's headed, about what its goals and ambitions are. The biggest questions are, what is the United States going to do? Are we going to be you know, involved in whatever it is that we're involved with here in the United States? Or are we going to continue to play a stabilizing, stable role in Asia that is in our interests, and I would argue uh, in Asia's interests? I would emphatically agree with you about the role that the United States has played in creating the, the, the order in which China was able to prosper and to flourish. Absolutely. But I also would say that there are lots of Chinese people who would agree with that and who recognize that and who don't see it as zero sum. Uh, you, you define it as a, a very refined zero sum mentality. And, and yeah, I think I've encountered that, that sort of attitude but, as well. But what I would say generally, I, I'm not talking about the people that you meet on the street. No, no, I'm not. And either. I'm not talking about the, you know, the folks that you, the, the interlocutors that I work with at the party level, at the strategic leadership level, diplomats and military, my experience over 30 years suggests these guys think and go to school on power on a regular basis. That's not that's not a criticism. It is simply a recognition, and this is not uh, a sentimental or particularly nostalgic group in that respect. After your confirmation as Assistant Secretary, uh, you were certainly aware, and it was in 2009, we were in really the, the midst of the crisis already. Surely you were aware again, sensitive as you are to perception, that this was going to be seen by the the, the Chinese, certainly, as the beginning of, of a serious American decline, and that you would understand that in such a context, Chinese would be even more sensitive to displays of what they would see as hubris by America. So if, after being you know heartily sick of hearing those lectures, we, you suddenly come at it with, oh, no, we are going to stay engaged for for the rest of it, and, and here's this new policy that we're calling the pivot. Uh, what was your sense of how China was going to react? I mean, surely you, you, you must have anticipated that in that context it would be a hard sell. Yeah, well, thanks. The, the first real use of that terminology was really in 2011. Right. Um, so it really wasn't in 2009. I, what I was struck by when I came into office, um, you know, it seems a million years ago, and, you know, you guys all have your curves ahead of you, and you kind of look back and you think. But I, I was struck. So the, the U.S. position in Asia is is strong. And we have this incredible legacy of, of alliances and partnerships and friendships and a very critical, the most important piece of that really is the U.S.-China relationship. But I would argue that the, the essential ingredient in that mix is American effort. And, you know, my Republican friends hate this when, when, when I say it. I mean, I, I don't – this is the old Republican Party, you know, like five or six years ago. The ones you can be friends with. But, no, but when you, say, when you say we were distracted and we were not taking the necessary investments, well, they would say nonsense. We're doing what we need to do. The, the problem is that what was necessary in Asia 
has just gone up exponentially. So what used to pass as a, you know, kind of a gentleman's C grade just doesn't make it anymore. And you have, we had to do more and more. I was struck at how little engagement we had in Southeast Asia, uh, throughout the Pacific. I mean, uh, let, me, let me just give you an example of what I'm talking about. So, you know, uh, so we, you know, I, we put forward a set of initiatives to bring more leadership and more engagement to Southeast Asia. Really, Northeast Asia has always gotten a lot of focus and attention. And so I wanted to make sure that President Obama and Secretary Clinton visited on numerous occasions every Southeast Asian country. I also believed that we wanted engagement with Myanmar, as difficult as that was at the time. So I negotiated with the generals about the release of Aung San Suu Kyi. But during that process, we were planning for President Obama's visit to Malaysia, and I did some looking. So imagine this, it's 19, it's 2010, you know, 2011. When was the f- last time that American leader had gone to Malaysia, right? It was in the Johnson administration. So Good I found God. Pictures, of, <laughs> pictures of President Johnson walking down what were then um, um, dirt streets with water buffaloes, right? And he's in a kind of a white, you know, kind of, uh, you know, Southeast Asian suit. I, I, I was shocked. But, but basically that's, you know, if you believe like Southeast Asia is, a, you know, as in its totality, we have greater trade interaction with him than we do with Europe. And we haven't had a visit of a president since 1966, 1967. I mean, that's, if you look in the dictionary under neglect, there's a picture of that. So, so, Water so buffaloes I, and Petronas I don't towers. believe that is a sign of hubris. Now, I can understand why friends in Beijing may interpret it as such, but I think it is a clear statement of American purpose. And I'm unapologetic about saying that I want and I wanted to see a firmer and more decisive American role in the Asia-Pacific region. And I see nothing wrong with that. Um, And I think it's basically in uh, all the country's interests. And I also believe fundamentally it's in China's strategic interests as well. We'll get back to how how much of that has stuck, how much of uh, what you tried to lay down has endured uh, beyond the Obama administration. But I, I do want to talk to you about a couple of really interesting things that happened, again, on your watch while you were assistant secretary. Uh, one of them you mentioned, which was the extrication of Chen Guangcheng, who was that self-taught blind activist lawyer uh, from Shandong province who uh, happened to uh, affect that move to the, the embassy at a time when uh, you and Secretary Clinton were coming to Beijing for, I mean, that was a, a really interesting moment. Chen, I think that uh, we, we're, we're, we're all aware, I'm not sure how you, you know, how much you want to talk about this, but, and I, I, I he made certain allegations in, in his memoir afterward. I tend to take some of this with a very large grain of salt, given the company he kept after leaving China. Uh, but maybe you can talk a little bit about the unkind things that, that, that Chen said and uh, how you would uh, respond to that. Yeah, it's a really uh, tough set of negotiations. Uh, Kaiser's being diplomatic. I mean, he, he wrote a memoir after. He was pretty uh, critical of me. I was the dominant negotiator uh, in that. And I think, I think, he, I, I think his biggest uh, allegation was that we forced him out of the embassy and encouraged him to leave. And... Uh, I, you know, I, I think it's, I've tried never to get into a he said, he said kind of deal. 
I, I, when I look at that period and the two weeks I was involved in it, there isn't anything I did that I would take back. And there wasn't one thing that I did that I didn't think represented the best interests of the United States. And I felt I was honest and strategic with him and tried to listen very carefully to what he said. Um, we, uh, my first meeting with him, he told me that what was most important for him is that he did not want to leave China and that he wanted to stay in China and that people who'd left China had lost the ability to shape China's destiny and that he wanted to stay and he wanted protections. He wanted to create an environment where he could stay in China. So I was, my partner in the diplomacy was a person that I could not respect more. As a, He was the Assistant Secretary for, for uh, Human Rights and Democracy, Harold Coe. He's just the most wonderful human being. And we worked through that process, and we're, we've been actually pretty much brothers since. So we tried to create a, a Kaiser, an ability for him to stay in China to study and then have an opportunity to travel. And, and you know, when you look back on it, it seems naive, to be honest. And, you know, it's uncertain what we really thought we were able to accomplish there. We thought we had the assurances. And when he left uh, the embassy for the hospital I was writing with him, he immediately got on the phone to start calling his friends in the United States and in uh, Beijing. He was extremely excited about what had transpired and what he thought he had negotiated and the engagement from the U.S. side. Almost everyone on the phone that he talked to, and he went through a suite, provided him two phones, and almost every call was like, what are you doing? You've got to get out of there. You've got to get out of the, you've got to get out of China. And I could see, and I remember, we were, you know, I was writing with the Clinton staff who, he, she had just arrived. I'd come earlier. We were exhausted. But I just, you know, I, I don't know why. I, you know, I've got a bunch of daughters at home. So I, I have at least a modicum of emotional intelligence. I could, <laughs> I could tell right then that he was not, that this was not going to work, that he was going to be unhappy. And, and almost immediately, you know, he, he um, started making calls and, you know, was on, you know, Senate and congressional hearings, sort of arguing that maybe, you know, he had left under some pressure. I, I, my own personal assessment is that it was hard to admit that, you know, maybe my initial judgment was not the right judgment. And so, but that's not something that I think he would, he would say, but we spent the next several months making sure that he was able to leave. And we brought every power to bear to ensure that he was able to come to the United States and go to NYU. And so all I would say, Kaiser, is I, I, I did, I'm not without completely without skill diplomatically. I put everything on the table to get that done. There was a period, like I remember I was in the airport once, I was traveling with my daughters. We were, we were going out to, and, and his book appeared and I, for the first time, and it was at the bookstore at the airport. I know if you guys, when your career goes on, you'll know what this is like. <laughs> and I opened the book and it was really critical. And it was, you know, he, he, was, he was good about Secretary Clinton, but you guys would probably understand there's nothing you do in these situations without the support of president and the secretary of state. So I was, I was the point person in a large effort. But what we did, you know, was 
tough and that he pretty much decided that I would be the person that he would take out. You know, he had some really bad things to say about the Chinese, but also about me as well. And I remember like starting vacation on a really down note. Like uh, my, my daughters were like, what's wrong? What's wrong? I'm like, nothing, you know, but <laughs> so anyway, it's kind of a long story there. I just want to gut check my own sense of this, yeah. but it would have been diplomatically much more costly to keep him in China. Yes. I look, you know, the truth is that uh, he, we've had people live at the embassies in both uh, in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. We had people living in embassies for years and people lived in the Chinese embassy after Tiananmen for a couple of years. I, I, um, I don't know, costly Kaiser, I, I would say it probably would have been a distraction. Um, but at the same time, Chinese interlocutors handled this incredibly professionally. I was tough, but very businesslike. And, and they, they knew, I think their strategic interests actually, to be honest, I think on some level probably preferred he leave. Right. That's, that's what would have and, been my, would have been my Yeah. Guess. So, so I don't, um, I don't, I, I think if, if we'd said, look, we want him to go from the start, it may have taken a little bit longer, but we would have worked that out. But remember, Kaiser, he left from, you know, he was not in the embassy. He lived outside of, you know, uh, he lived at the hospital and, you know, with his family for almost two months before coming to the United States. So that, that required some effort, and and the Chinese followed through on what they committed to. All this this detail on this really pivotal event has just whetted my appetite to ask uh, Kurt about another really fascinating uh, set of events that happened again on your watch, which was, of course, the defection of Wang Lijun to, or the attempted defection, uh, who was the, the ex-vice mayor and the, the chief of police of Chongqing, who was a close associate of Bo Xilai, and uh, his role in the whole downfall of Bo Xilai. Uh, yeah. What can you can you can you match what you just told us about the the inside? Scoop? I mean, all, all I would say is that he he came to our consulate uh, with a huge suitcase full of money. <laughs> it's not your normal visitor, no. you know. Uh, and money and, and documents and right? then and, doc- and then he prepared. He he proceeded to you know be debriefed, and the guys there were just shocked at all his allegations. Um, I mean, the truth is he, he uh, after some private consultations and calls on his own, he decided that he he was going to leave the embassy or leave the consulate. I mean, there was no way where he was that he would have been able, I mean, you know, he's in the middle of China. It'd be very hard uh, to do anything, but there was no, we got nowhere near him interest, being interested in asylum right. or anything like that. He, he, he really made his own set of calls and, and, and interactions with Chinese leaders. But it was what was astonishing is, um, you know, I remember we were on calls, but, but, you know, a whole security establishment from a separate province descended on our uh, little consulate and they were surrounding. And, and there was tension between the some of the police and security of of you know around the embassy around the consulate and Boshilai's team who arrived and it was just it was just incredible right and I I will say what was fascinating about it for me is when 
then Vice President Xi had come to the United States as a guest of, Vi- of Vice President Biden. And that in itself was the most bizarre mixture of personalities I had ever seen. <laughs> so Vice President Biden has absolutely no filter and loves to talk and loves to tell stories. And at that point in his political trajectory, Vice President Xi was the most careful, um, uh, reluctant to really engage deeply personally uh, uh, official I'd ever met. Right. And I traveled with him around the United States as as one of his control officers. And when we were in the Midwest together, and the only time he ever opened up was over drinks. And he was different than than um, who and when. And I could tell that even then. He was young. He was dynamic. He was very confident. Where who and when, when you met with them, you were struck, these are old men. These are older men. But but he was dynamic and young, and also the team around them were nervous. You could tell that these guys wanted to be really, you know, on the ball and be accepted by the big boss or the soon-to-be big boss. But what was fascinating, the reason I mentioned it, Kaiser, is the only time I heard him really talking about stuff. He was talking. This was this was when Bo Shilai was really on the on the make and and moving up, right? And, and they were talking, he was talking about how, how Bo had really figured out something about the use of revolutionary propaganda from the 1940s to inspire a new generation of Chinese youth, right? And he was really impressed by Bo had done it. And all his, the guys around him going, absolutely, sir, great idea. And I'm thinking, you this, were is, present de- at this the is delusional. Yeah. Like, like <laughs> black and white photos are going to inspire a new group of Chinese oh, kids. Lord. It's not going to happen. But, but that was the period before Bo's um, uh, faulting. And I often think that, see, I think what generally happened is that these systems, you're always on the lookout for where is the, where is the threat, where is the person that's going to seek to undermine collective rule? Because basically at the core of what modern China has been about is, is do your best to create checks and balances on the whims and the ability of one leader to dominate the system. And that is essentially Deng's great contribution to China is to create these efforts that would essentially encumber leaders, Right. Um, so that you would not have a repeat of, of, of Mao again, or at least the worst aspects of Mao. And I think what happened in 2009, 2010, was they thought, well, we've caught the wolf, right? We caught the wolf among us, and we've stopped him, and that's Bo Xilai. Bo Xilai, who clearly had aspirations to be a dominant leader, and as they were congratulating themselves on that Bo has been eradicated from the scene, basically another leader who, you know, the jury is still out, but certainly a, a leader in Xi Jinping who is determined to eliminate most aspects associated with collective rule and modern Chinese decision making in favor of the views of one. That process went forward. Not long ago, uh, you published a piece in Foreign Affairs that you co-authored with Eli Ratner, which was, you kind of call for a rethink about engagement. Um, what is it that you think that the proponents of engagement in the period after Tiananmen and you know during the uh, the PNTR negotiations and WTO accession? Uh, what do you what is it that you think that the proponents of engagement got fundamentally wrong? Yeah. So one of the hard things about when you write a piece about like this is that you spend most of your time trying to correct 
you know, the precision of language. So for me, I would argue we did not question the importance of engagement. And I actually think engagement is incredibly important and decisive. What we tried to question were some of the assumptions that were behind the strategies of engagement, right? So I actually think at the core of what the United States has tried to do with China is apply certain aspects of manifest destiny. If we just engage in certain ways, then China will modernize, liberalize, adjust and adapt on the global stage in ways that we want. And I believe that that ambition is a key feature of the U.S.-China relationship and has been for 30 years. The idea that we can play a predominant role in shaping China's course on the international stage. And what I think we tried to argue, and you can always do it better, and it has certainly sparred enough debate, is that we had to really stop and re- I, I would say that China is on its own trajectory and that we have to stop. And we, you would be shocked at how much time we spend in government thinking about doing things that will shape Chinese choices and how China is going to respond, as opposed to what is in, a, in the best strategic interest of the United States. So, so, for instance, we went through several features. For me, the thing that I worry the most about right now is the business relationship, in which I think it is just undeniable. I don't think this is even a subject of debate that some of the steps that China has taken, 2025, American business, that are just, if if followed through, will be completely antithetical to American strategic interests and have to be addressed. And I have been struck, and it's been hard for me, frankly hard, because what President Trump and his team have done is basically said no more, right? And, and, they, and it's not clear that they know what they want, and it's not clear that they've got a strategy. But what is astonishing to me and concerning is that President Trump has basically received and gotten more Chinese leverage and ability and you know, potential. Chinese are saying, look, we'll do what it takes to avoid this um, by this brutal approach than we got by treating China as a partner and with deep respect. And it's very hard, no, it's very hard to get to the Chinese bottom line. And it suggests, again, that at the core of much of what we've done in our interactions with China has been about negotiation and about what shallow engagement, what China is prepared to do, and and it, and whether that's Iran, whether it's climate change, some of that has been incredibly tough as opposed to thinking about it within the context of a partnership with the United States, what things should we do with respect to global governance that is in both of our strategic interests? Yeah, I didn't think that your piece was, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I, I know that you're wiser than that. Um, but, you know, my, my, my sense is, so you, you call for kind of a new humility uh, in in this piece about what we would be able to actually accomplish, our abilities to change China, uh, what would this recalibration entail? What what do you what what sub- substantively would be this approach, this new humility? So I, I mean, so for me, if I were king for a day or queen for a day, um, I, I mean, I think it has several elements to it. I mean, the first is I would be one of those people that says that you can't simply do bilateral business with China in Asia and leave it at that. 
that you have to have a strategy in Asia that not only puts U.S.-China relations at the core, but also you have to have very effective engagement with the other countries in Asia because you are better off engaging China as part of a larger framework of interaction. Uh, two, I, you would be astonished at how much time we spend in high-level diplomacy figuring out what the banner will be. Is it, you know, constructive strategic partnership? What's the banner that goes, you know, what's the framework that we're going to – and very little time on what, again, what I would call habits of cooperation, tactical little things, building programs like 100,000 Strong, right? So I would focus much more on practical steps to build people-to-people and like, so p- people would say, well, this program that now John Abley runs, it's a small little diplomatic initiative. Nothing could be more important in the U.S.-China relationship than sending your most prized thing, which are your children, to China. That's the greatest sign of respect, greatest sign of engagement. And that's why I'm so strongly for that. Here, here. Understand, no, understand. It's incredibly yeah. important. Absolutely. Um, but people will sometimes say, oh, that's just soft and small on the side. No, it's no. hugely significant and important. I also think that the risks of miscalculation and mistakes uh, are really high. And um, although I do not seek a confrontational relationship with China, we have very few institutions that manage crises. We have no we have really no hotline that works. We have no codes of conduct. We don't have the protocols that essentially would regulate our military competition when our forces inevitably come up uh, close to one another. So I would have a whole menu of things, Kaiser, that I would do that I think are practical um, that would lead the United States and China into a different place. So I, I think it I think we have to not be romantic about the relationship. It is our most important relationship in the world. But we have to recognize that at the core of this is a mixture of cooperation and competition. And and we have to try to drive that competition into areas that are creative and that are not about, you know, going to guns in the South China Sea, but much more about who produces the best you know, cloud computer and a level playing field. It's not fair that Chinese companies are on a buying spree in the United States and American comparable companies are not allowed to do business in China. And that is essentially the, the situation that we're facing now. And, and, and I commend the Trump administration for at least calling it out and saying if this continues, you will lose support in the United States for this relationship. But let's be fair. I mean, the there was kind of a bipartisan consensus on the need to do this, that however it had gone in, in November of 2016, this probably would have been the American posture. Yeah? I agree with that. Okay. Um, I want to situate this maybe- I was just broad- trying to be bipartisan a little bit there. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard, but I have it to really do it is. occasionally. It like is. once a week, you know. Uh, well, you've, you've done your, your good deed. Now you can go back to, you know. The regularly scheduled Trump bashing. Uh, I I am um, I want to you know situate this in a broader sort of historical. We have this this habit. This is something that John Pomfret really brought up in his book, The Beautiful Country in the Middle Kingdom, uh, where he he talks about this this pattern that we fall into, where we set really unrealistically high expectations. We Americans uh, about 
what we might do to try to we set really high hopes and they are inevitably dashed and they it will it, these are not expectations that any country can live up to especially I mean, since we're talking recently in the course of one biological generation i mean really what could we have uh, uh, fully expected uh and then when they are dashed we are as the kids these days would say butt hurt over it we are just we we're just we're salty right salty is, is another word that's a, that's probably a better word right, yeah. right. okay <laughs> but we are not i mean we 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 and and then we fly off in this high dudgeon and uh, i mean i see this pattern working itself up so what kurt's paper has called for is maybe a, a, re, a management of our expectations but do you think that we should really stop i mean i i would would say hey but let's let's look let's look at that china over the last 40 years and hasn't it become Okay, if, let's let's take out the last few years of Xi Jinping. At yeah, least. except for but, that, Mrs. But if we, had, if we had looked at it in, in 2007 or 2008, wouldn't we have concluded? And you know, ironically, this is when Jim Mann's book came out. Yeah. Uh, wouldn't we have concluded that you know there has been an advance in rule of law, there has been you know uh, an, uh, a swelling civil society, there has been a more clamorous, growing, louder public sphere? Wouldn't we have? Couldn't we have sort of said, well, it's it's working. Kaiser, I, I'm, I hate to say it, but I, I think you're making the point. Those points are made in our article. Yeah, that no, we I, saw, I, 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 I'm, rem- I'm well, we saw remarkable achievements. The greatest achievement in China is pulling, you know, a billion people or almost a billion people out of poverty. It's the most remarkable thing that has been accomplished in global development in the last 30 years. I, I, I would simply say, though, is this. So for me, who have worked and, and known... Chinese academics, friends, intellectuals for 30 years, right? Um, My conversations today with them, and this is not one or two, these are almost everyone, are unrecognizable from what took place five or 10 years ago. It's different this time. Well, yeah, but well, I don't know if it's different this time. I don't know what that means. See, so what but... I'm going with that is, is if we had tried to take the temperature, say, after the EP3 incident in, in 2001, if we had taken the temperature after the embassy bombing in 99, wouldn't we have yeah. concluded uh, really pessimistically? No, I, I, I think those are blips and those are momentary responses to, you know, to, to challenges. I think what we're talking about is a much more systemic shift that is not predicated on one incident, but it is the changing course of a society. And I, I really, I followed, you know, uh, the, the role of non-government organizations, of, of think tanks, of, of writing in China. The, the, the civil society piece, the academic freedoms, the inquiries that existed 10 or 15 years ago, are non-existent today in China. And, and I, I say that in a way, it sounds like, oh boy, you're not a supporter of China. That's not right. I, I, I am hugely supportive of this relationship, but I think we have to recognize and be honest that, that some of what we hope to see in China is not taking place. And I, I, I'll just conclude with this, Kaiser. Like, again, I have a friend who's an academic. I'm just not going to say who it is because it's just not in his interests. We've been close friends for 30 years. Not like John. John has deep relationships, but I've known this guy, and I've I've been friendly with him. He stayed at my house. We got together uh, about a month ago, and it was just he and I, and he comes to the United States often. uh, And he said, Kurt, I just want to say I can't talk to you like I used to talk. We can talk about family. 
um, we can talk a little bit about what's going on in the United States, but I really can't talk with you about some of the stuff that we've talked about. And it, he had a deep sadness, um, and he was very careful. But but I just, you know, part of why programs like this are so important is that I, I think we have to send a signal that at the same time that we are concerned, we're not giving up hope, and that we have real ambitions for the United States and China, for the American and Chinese people to work together and to have some degree of common experience in the 21st century. And so, so, so I don't mean it to be like, this is not a clarion call for containment by way of concept that is completely non-applicable to the complexities of the U.S.-China relationship, but more a recognition there is too much um, sentimentality, romance, uh, and, uh, and, you know, sort of glamour uh, associated with certain aspects of the relationship when, in fact, some of this is gritty, tough, and about power. You heard it from the trenches. So, yeah, I think that that's a really great place to, to wrap up this portion. And I, there are a million other questions I'd love to ask you. But let's, let's hear, it. first of all, a very warm round of applause. For- Such an honor. But before I let you go, Kurt, I, I do want to uh, get on to the recommendations segments as we mm-hmm. do on Seneca. And before that, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. You can follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And if you like the Seneca podcast, please leave us a positive review on the Apple iTunes store or wherever you get your podcasts. On recommendations, Kurt, why don't you go first? Anything at all? So, like, like I'm just like anyone who you go through periods where you, like, get a little down and such. So I found, first of all, they did this study on people that fly too much, you know. And, and like, like it's really interesting because I read a lot of the literature. There's this whole thing about, like, you know, what it does to you. And one of the things it does to you is, this is, again, a true story. It makes you more emotional than you should be. Like, so, like I cry on so, airplanes. Right? No, no. I, I mean, so, yeah, no, so and I, I'm thinking, this is ridiculous. That's not true. That's not me. And so about, about like, seven or eight years ago, I was at the State Department, and I was flying across, flying to Asia, and I was watching this, this movie, Babe. Have you seen it? About oh, the yeah. <laughs> and I'm sobbing watching the movie. Oh, my God. I, and the, I, and this the, is the, so flight, true. the flight attendant came over and said, is everything okay? So, it's a, so I think there's truth to that. So for me, like I try to watch something that inspires me right now. I just try to find. And so for, if you haven't seen it, best all time movie, Darkest Hour. Okay. Oh yeah, fantastic. Great. So for you guys who have not seen it, watch Darkest or watch it again and again. Great recommendation. That just shows you what's possible in the darkest moments. Like it's the story of Winston Churchill in 1941. So right, 1940, right before. Uh, Pearl Harbor. Just, I'm getting goosebumps even thinking about. It. So that's the, that's the first that's the first recommendation. Um, books that I really like. The Australian author who wrote someone, The Road to the Distant North. Is that what it's called? It's it's it won the um, it Man, won the, uh, the Booker. Yeah, the Booker Prize two years ago. But it's a, it's a story of 
an Australian prisoner of war in the 1940s and 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 what he goes through it is it is mass it's just a masterpiece two excellent World War II related recommendations from Kurt um, yeah, you see where my mind yeah, is. yeah, yeah that's great uh, I'm going to recommend a book uh, by the historian the Yale historian Timothy Snyder it's his newest book it's called the road to unfreedom uh, it's absolutely great I mean he's a powerful mind he's sort of a protege of of the late Tony Jutt, I think his name is pronounced, uh, J-U-G-D-T. And uh, he's written about uh, the Soviet and Nazi period of collaboration when they basically tried to eradicate the nation of Poland. This latest book is of a piece with a few others that I've read about, primarily about Russia, about what uh, Russia under Putin has been trying to do to basically pull out the epistemic rug from under everything and, and basically ruin truth for everyone to decide that f- f- news there is no such thing as truth it's, it's it's a really frightening kind of decentering narrative and it ties to what they've been doing in league with uh, right-wing parties in Europe and of course here in the United States as we will find out soon hopefully when the Mueller investigations conclude uh, anyway it's a great book I highly recommend it I'm about halfway through it and already I'm um, just just telling everyone I can I can possibly tell about it Kurt, thanks once again uh, for taking the time to speak. This has been great. Uh, uh, We have more questions, so next time, yeah? Great. Thank you. I'll be happy to hear you. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be great. Thanks again to John Holden, to Samri, and to Ivana for making this possible. Yeah. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at SubChina News. And don't forget to leave us a positive review on iTunes or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Take care.